Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're moving back into the world of philosophy, and we're moving into the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. Uh, Schopenhauer is often just kind of dismissed as being pessimistic, and he gets oversimplified to people say, you know, life is meaningless, life is worthless, the best thing we can do is all die. This is definitely not what Schopenhauer is talking about. Um, although he does, uh, he is a pessimist, um, but his, his philosophy is a lot more complex than that, and it actually has a lot more uh, deep analysis of life. One of the things about Schopenhauer is, remember we talked about Kant at the end of last season, and I, and I said that Kant sort of sets up a lot of the philosophies that come after him. Well, Schopenhauer is one that is following off um, of the things that Kant worked on. And Schopenhauer is also one that there are other philosophers um, who are extremely influential who are working off of um, Schopenhauer. Uh, one, for example, is Friedrich Nietzsche, builds a lot of his ideas on some of the ideas of Schopenhauer. Um, there's also, we'll see similar ideas in quite a few different areas of philosophy. Uh, so we're going to start talking about what exactly this uh, philosopher said. You know, it's not just life is meaningless, we should all die. Uh, one of the things that he wanted to figure out was he did agree with Kant in that we had no, uh, we only had access directly to our perceptions, to the things we saw about the external world, to the phenomena. We don't have access to the things in themselves. But he had a problem with this. He sort of felt that this uh, kind of left us in the middle of nowhere and didn't really seem to make sense that we would have no access to these things and yet we would be able to, to take perceptions off of these things. So he does start to talk about one thing that we do have access to. And the one thing that we do have access to outside of the mind is our own bodies. And so he sort of starts his analysis uh, of his own, uh, starting from his own body. And the way he looks at it is he wants to look at what is the things that he can say about not only his body, but about everything in general. And one of the things that he realizes about um, all life, uh, starting with his own life and everybody else's, is that there's a will that is driving everything. And so he puts this will as the foundation of everything else. And this will is a will to life. Now, in, you know, simpler organisms, simpler creatures, uh, this will is simply the will to reproduce, the will to keep living and to keep reproducing oneself. And he sees this as something that is also there in the lives of humans. We are also driven by this. And he sort of sees this as one of our problems, one of the things that leads to our unhappiness. Because this will is a blind will. This will is not rational. This will just wants to survive, to procreate, wants more, 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 more. There is no uh, satiation of this will. This will is something that just continually wants more. No matter what you give uh, the will, no matter what you accomplish, you simply want more. Now, for the lower um, animals and plants, uh, life forms, he, he labels them as the brutes. 
Um, and he basically talks about the fact that they have access to the life of the right now. You know, everything about the life of a plant and an animal is about this moment, the moment that they're living in at the present. Uh, they don't worry about the past. They don't worry about the future. You know, they're not planning for retirement. They don't have long-term goals. Uh, everything about their existence is in the right now. And this is one of the things that um, allows them to have less of a unhappy life than the higher creatures such as ourselves. Because they're not constantly worried about things. They're able to enjoy where they are. And this is definitely an idea that you see picked up in Marxism and you see picked up in a lot of um, ideas in the 20th century about sort of trying to get back to being in the present instead of constantly being pulled away from the present to some time in the future when everything's going to be wonderful or some time in the past when everything is better, was better back then. And this is one of the things that Schopenhauer really sees as the things that the thing that causes misery. And the more intelligent you are, the worse this is. So he even among humans kind of splits it up into three levels. Uh, the lowest level in humans are the people who are barely surviving. The people who basically have to give everything they can just to feed themselves just to, you know, have a subsistence existence, um, these people don't have as much time to worry about the future. Uh, and so they are not happy like the brutes because they're completely unaware of the past and the, and the future. Um, they're still aware of them, but they don't have time to dwell on them, to obsess over them. Uh, the next level up, he talks about being sort of like the business people. Uh, the business class. Um, they're always uh, planning for the future, thinking about things that are going to not only make money now, but make money in the future, Make not only make them successful now, but be successful in the future. And so this future is always hanging over them. And the problem with the future is it's always uncertain. We have no way of knowing what it will be. We can plan for it, we can hope for it, but it's completely unknown. And so it meets with a lot of hopes and expectations, but also a lot of fears. And he talks about the hopes and expectations as being when we get there, if we realize our hope, if we get our goal, it was never as great as we imagined it to be. So we spend all of our time imagining how wonderful it's going to be when I have a million dollars. And I finally get to the point where I have a million dollars. And it's like, okay, now I got a million dollars. And and so you get sort of to a point where it wasn't as wonderful as you thought. You know, people have the idea if they get to a certain level of wealth or if they own a certain object or they're, you know, married to a certain person, they're going to be happily ever after. And then they get to that point and it's never as perfect and never as happy as what they had hoped it would be. It's always a disappointment. And so they have to set another happy goal in order to try to get to that one. So you're constantly dissatisfied with the present because the present is made up of good things and bad things. And you're hoping to get rid of all of the bad things at some point in the future. And he talks about when you look back to the past, 
we tend not to see with as great of detail all of the negative things of day-to-day -day life. We tend to look at it with nostalgia, look at it with sort of this longing of, wow, things were so much better back then. But when we were back then in that time period, you know, we had the, the present, it was the present, and we had all of these things that we hated and things that we liked, and it was never perfect, it was never satisfying. And the other way, the things we fear and the things we avoid, try to avoid, he talks about when we look into the future and try to avoid them, we always make them to be much worse than they turn out to be. And so what ends up happening is even though it's not as bad as we thought it would be when we get to it, we wasted all of the present moments up until we got to it with that fear and that dread and we kind of ruined those moments. And so we stretched out something that was going to be probably a momentary unpleasantness and we made it last days, weeks, years and stretched it out. Um, and the highest level he sees are the people who kind of uh, can rise above that, kind of the aesthetic, the people who can live the aesthetic life, the life of enjoyment of the present, enjoyment of art, enjoyment of a beautiful landscape, now enjoyment of philosophy. He talks about the fact that, you know, most people can only get moments of that. You know, you're looking out at the Grand Canyon and for a moment you're pulled away from that will to strive, that will to get more, to have more, to procreate, and you just kind of get lost in the moment. It's like you get that moment where there's a there's a breath and you're like, you know, for the moment you're transported out of yourself and you're satisfied. Um, all of these longings he talks about are things that lead to our unhappiness. And if this sounds familiar to some people, um, these are similar things that are talked about in Buddhism. You know, Buddhism is the, the main uh, foundations of Buddhism is that attachments lead to suffering. Attachments lead to pain. The more we're attached to this world, the more pain we're going to feel, the more pain we're going to suffer. And Schopenhauer actually came to these conclusions independently through his own philosophy. But he ends up coming to the same conclusions of the Buddhists. And he acknowledges this as well. As he gets older and learns about Buddhism and uh, the, the tenets of it, you know, he kind of realizes that, yeah, these guys had it right too. These guys see the same thing that I see, that this attachment to life, this attachment to getting things, to procreating, to, you know, uh, thinking we have to have all of this stuff is really what is making us miserable. And the goal for the Buddhist and the goal for Schopenhauer is to get out of that, to get out of that cycle of misery, to get out of that cycle of life, or in Schopenhauer's case, the will to life, which is what causes all of the misery. He even talks about in a lot of his later essays, you know, particular ways where this desire or this will to procreate leads to a lot of our misery. You know, he talks about if we were to pick our um, romantic partners with our minds instead of our will to procreate, we would make very different choices. You know, procreation, we want the one that we think is going to satisfy that need. Sort of physical attraction is what he's talking about. You know, the physical attraction draws us to certain people.
Well, how many times have you been physically attracted to someone and then eventually that physical attraction wears off and this person now annoys you 24-7 because there's no longer the physical attraction? You've given your life over to this will to procreate, this will to life, and now you're stuck with someone you have nothing in common with. And Schopenhauer talks about this. And remember, this is in the 1800s. This is in a time where divorce was really a possibility in any of the Christian religions for the most part. Uh, once you picked your mate, got married, and started having children, that was who you were stuck with until one of you died. And so this, um, these drives that we have that are part of our will to life... Um, are drives that are contrary to what will make us happy. There are things that we want right now, and when we get them, they're never satisfying. And a lot of times when we get them, they've locked us into something long-term that we can't get out of. Um, <clears throat> now, aside from this will applying to living creatures, uh, Schopenhauer actually saw this as applying to inanimate objects, too. That the entire universe was one giant will to life. All of the matter, living, uh, organic and inorganic, um, was all part of that same will, which meant we were all part of the same will. Uh, this is sort of an I idea that is, you know, similar to what you see in Buddhism, where, you know, the, the torment of, of our lives is that we are isolated into these, what we feel to be individual identities that are striving for things we can never fully satisfy ourselves with, when the reality of what we are is we're all one being, and when we kind of give up that um, sense of self and, and sort of become part of the universal oneness, that's when we get out of the pain. You know, that's the way Buddhists see you, you become you know, one with the universe, you, you enter nirvana. Uh, Schopenhauer sees you kind of commit, uh, eventually some people can get to the point where they embrace like a mysticism, where they see all of everything is um, connected, all of everything, you know, your suffering and everyone else's suffering is all tied in together. And so the desire becomes to... Um, get rid of that suffering. Now, one of the conclusions that uh, Schopenhauer does eventually draw is that that means the best thing humans can do is stop reproducing so we can go extinct. And this is where people get that idea of, you know, life is worthless, we might as well just die. Um, but it's much more complex than that. When you think about Schopenhauer, think about him more in the line of Buddhism. And he's actually sort of credited as one of the first Western thinkers, Western philosophers, to incorporate Eastern ideas and to kind of merge those two philosophies. So Schopenhauer's ideas and the ideas of Buddhism and Eastern philosophies um, start to come together when they had been on very uh, separate paths, when the path of most of Western philosophy had been about obtaining happiness and about the individual um, and sort of moving in the opposite direction, whereas Buddhism had been about, you know, the connection of everything, Schopenhauer kind of moves around to where he brings Western philosophy to that point as well. Now, he has other things that you can, um, outside of this idea, that uh, shape other 
areas of philosophy. One of the ways that I see him, uh, his idea shaping later philosophy and kind of a rejection of a lot of earlier philosophy is when he starts talking about education. And one of the things that he, one of the problems he has with education is that he believes children shouldn't be taught general ideas and then try to go out into the real world and apply those general ideas to specifics. Uh, he believes this is backwards. And what this leaves children with is sort of these unrealistic views of the world, these false views of the world. And when they're you know, given these ideas, especially at an early age, they believe that this must be true. And then when they look at the world and the world doesn't match what their expectations are, they start to think there must be something wrong with the way they're perceiving things or the way that they're looking at things. And one of the things that Schopenhauer says is, no, you've, we've, we're teaching children in the wrong direction. They should be exposed to specific things um, that they can understand, specific things that are manageable, and then from there be led to, to draw general propositions about the way things are. So instead of going from the deductive logic of the general propositions to describe the specific, he's sort of moving education more to an inductive level, where as the child develops, their level of intelligence um, allows them to see things that are more and more complex. You can't give them things that are too complex before they're ready for them. Two of the examples that he makes is that he doesn't believe religion or philosophy should be taught to anyone under 15 years old. Uh, under 15 years old, people are still getting the basics. If you give them a philosophy, if you give them philosophy, if you give them religion before that, and then that becomes ingrained, and then they try to look at the way the world is, and it doesn't match up with these ideals they were taught, um, they're going to be somewhat lost. Uh, Schopenhauer is also very famous as being uh, one of the openly atheist philosophers. Um, again, another one of the reasons that he is uh, a big influence on Friedrich Nietzsche, who is also uh, an atheist. Uh, Nietzsche also picks up his idea on the will and moves it in a different direction. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Friedrich Nietzsche. So the idea of Schopenhauer of starting with you know, letting children experience specific things and then draw their general principles from that um, goes contrary to Platonic thinking. Remember, Platonic thinking starts in the ideal world of forms, and then we have to figure out why this horrible, sloppy world we live in doesn't live up to that expectation of the world of forms. And so Schopenhauer is kind of directly refuting that and saying the reason is you're forming your ideas in the wrong direction. You have to have your ideas about what's actually here, the things in front of you, and then you can extrapolate to the larger world. Now, one of the things that you're going to find when you read Schopenhauer that he is much less than uh, enlightened has to do with his view of women. Um, when you read his view of women, it's it's almost cringeworthy because it's, it's very much a product of his time period. Uh, he doesn't believe women... Um, have the capability of deep thought. And he, 
I won't go into it as much in this podcast, but we will go into it in future episodes when we deal more in depth with his philosophy. But a lot of that had to do with not only his culture of the time and the way women were viewed, but it also, if you think about it, has to do with the opportunities women were given. You know, he talks about there aren't any great women artists or, you know, you know, things like that or philosophers. And it's like, well, of course not. They weren't allowed to be those things. You know, you can't wonder why you don't have anybody, any female artists when they aren't really allowed to be artists. They aren't really taken seriously. Um, they aren't given the kind of encouragement and training that men were given. You can't really have a lot of female philosophers when the idea about educating women is teach them barely enough so that they don't embarrass their husbands. Uh, so a lot of that is, is you know, the narrow-mindedness of his time, but also it, it reflects, you know, things that are somewhat the reality of his time. You know, if you don't educate women, you can't be surprised that none of them turn out to be philosophers if you only give them basic level education. And this doesn't mean there weren't women philosophers, by the way. There were women that were philosophers. The problem is because women were viewed as incapable of these things, they were often completely dismissed. And so a lot of their works never survived. You know, going prior to uh, Schopenhauer, you do have Mary Wollstonecraft, um, who is writing um, philosophy. She's writing philosophy about gender. Um, you do have other philosophers throughout history that are female, but like I said, very little of their work, if any, survives um, because the society said women aren't allowed to know that stuff, uh, and in fact, it was even criminalized for women to um, try to be teachers, um, partially by because of religion. So I'm not making excuses for him, but I am sort of pointing out that, you know, when you do read his essay on women, you're going to pretty much cringe the whole time, and you're not going to find very many enlightened men in his time period when it comes to women. Uh, this doesn't start to, men don't start to you know, wake up and realize that, wow, women are pretty smart too, until a little later, until we start moving closer into the 20th century. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off the episode on Schopenhauer there. Um, for my next episode, I do want to kind of move into uh, another area that's a little different. Last time in literature, we did uh, films. Uh, we did a film, the film Metropolis. Uh, I want to move into um, a little bit of the world of diaries, and I want to focus on the diaries of a couple of different women, um, because this is one of the things that, as you start to move into the 20th century, women do start to break through into becoming uh, published authors. You know, prior to the 20th century, most of the women who were published actually published under men's names. The Bronte sisters all published under a man's name. Uh, George Sand is actually a woman. Uh, George Eliot is actually a woman. You know, But they knew that publishing under women's names, no one would publish them, no one would read their books. 
Um, so you do have female authors prior to that, but it's starting to get into the 20th century and the beginning of the 20th century where you start to sort of chip away at that and, and have them start to break through. And diary writing for a lot of women was the only um, acceptable form of writing because it was considered, you know, literature was still considered the boys club. Uh, but women were starting to break through that. And there were quite a few uh, women writers that start to come out in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, and we'll start talking about some of those next time. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.